On today's episode of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast, we'll be talking about the Bruins and what's been going on with them recently. I will take a look at last night's game against the Capitals, the shootout loss. Uh, We will also get to a myriad of a couple of Bruins topics, um, including the Bruins claiming Jared Jared Tenorti off waivers last week. We'll take a look at maybe some more trade targets for the Bruins as the trade deadline approaches. We're about a month or so out from that. At this point, we'll take a look around the NHL and what's been going on, who's hot, who's been uh, struggling recently, including the Bruins. Um, We will also talk about the Celtics and their recent run of play. It seems like they've figured a couple things out. They've won three straight, going for four straight in their last game before the All-Star break tonight. We'll take a look at the uh, All-Star game and the festivities. We'll take a look at those things. I will also take a look at the standings as we are at the All-Star break and see, you know, what things might be in store for the Celtics, what might be in store for other teams. Are they going to be buyers or sellers, you know, based on the um, ninth and 10th seed in those play-in games and, you know, how that's going to impact the rest of the uh, stretch run for the NBA. We'll take a look at the Red Sox. They've started their spring training play. We'll kind of take a look at some players who've been performing well in the spring training games. They've played a couple games. I think they're about to play one um, this afternoon. We'll take a look around the rest of Major League Baseball, uh, get to some signings. There was uh, a signing that we will talk about, the Brewers signing Jackie Bradley Jr. last night. So we'll talk about that. We will also get to the NFL, uh, talk about J.J. Watt's decision to join the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, there have also been some high-profile players that have been released so we'll take a look at you know what that means for the Patriots, what that means for the rest of the league. Um, and also, as we get closer to the draft and free agency, uh, what the Patriots' thought process is going to be uh, looking at that quarterback position. And then we will also get to some college hoops. We'll take a look at bracketology on ESPN. We'll take a look at the rankings for both the men's and women's um, basketball as we enter conference tournaments, and we are getting closer and closer uh, to March Madness. And... We will also get to some mailbag questions in today's episode. So let's go to it. And what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is episode 78 of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Hayden. And boy, do we have a lot to get to today. A lot of uh, Boston sports. Yeah, if you were expecting anything else, you've come to the wrong place. Uh, But we got a lot to talk about. A lot of thoughts from last night's Bruins game. Uh, we'll, We'll also be getting to some Celtic stuff. Uh, there's some rumors that are heating up, so uh, we'll take a look at that. Got a lot of good mailbag questions uh, for today's episode, so let's just get right into it. Uh, as always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. You can listen 
on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I said Apple Music last time and just like did not think twice about what I said. But yeah, you can follow us or you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Um, yeah, so let's let's get to it. Uh, Bruins with uh, 2-1 loss to the Capitals last night. Um, and I'll be honest, this was this is a really frustrating game. Um, and I understand that, you know, it was one of those games that it definitely got some people, uh, got, got some people hot and bothered on Twitter. Um, it was one of those games that, yeah, everyone was getting really mad. Everyone was getting pissed at, you know, different guys or, you know, the lack of urgency, the lack of shots. The Bruins had 18 shots on goal last night. Uh, you know, the, the season low for, for shots on goal. Um, and so one of my initial reactions to this game is, so obviously before the game, uh, we saw the news that uh, Charlie Coyle is on the uh, COVID, COVID list for, uh, you know, protocol reasons. So that's, it, it can be a number of different things. You know, I think obviously it can be a positive test. Um, it can also be a positive test that's, inconclusive or something like that you know he could also you know be in contact with someone that had the virus maybe he's showing symptoms and he has to quarantine you know it could be a couple different things so my initial reaction to this game last night the Bruins missed Charlie Coyle Um, Coyle is one of the Bruins best players at creating chances for other players Um, and I know that like some people have criticized him for his play this year. And yeah, you know, I think that I would have personally expected more from him um, at this point in the season. But, you know, you do also have to consider that he's played with a number of different wingers this season, Uh, much like Krejci has had, you know, throughout his Bruins career. Like, he's not playing with a consistent group of guys every single night. And so I think maybe that was part of the reason why, you know, he had a slow start. But I think that He's one of your best players at creating chances for other guys. And, you know, not to say that, you know, David Krejci's not good at that because he is, but, you know, Krejci had missed the last couple of games. He had missed the last three, four games. And, you know, I think that not having someone like Coyle in the lineup who's a good, you know, chance creator, a good shot creator uh, for other guys, you know, I think... You know, no, 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 duh, they couldn't get shots on goal. That was the biggest problem last night. And, you know, I think that it's, it's, it's good that they're putting Jack Stanika at center. You know, I think that I liked how they started him at wing, but I think that they've realized, and I think I've realized when I've been watching him is he's far more effective uh, at center. Um, And that's ultimately the position the Bruins are going to groom him into, you know, to be a regular NHL player that, you know, you're going to be our third line center, you know, presumably next season, you know, unless something changes. Um, but I think like you didn't have Coyle last night, he wasn't in the lineup. And, you know, as a result, you were not really in a shot first mentality, which kind of is weird to me. It seemed like the Bruins were passing up some shots, but again, it didn't feel like one of those games where the Bruins were passing up a lot of chances. Like, yes, certainly they passed up some chances, but, you know, guys were getting good shots on net, I think, especially in the third period. Um, But it was like they had two shots on goal in the first period, and that's inexcusable. Two shots on goal in a period is inexcusable. I really, I I don't understand how you can't get more than two shots on goal. 
Um, yeah, the Capitals really controlled the play for most of that first period. The Bruins are really lucky that this game was not out of hand, you know, in the first period. This game could have easily been 3 nothing in the first period. Uh, Tuka Rask really was the story of this game. He was the Bruins' best player last night. Um, I really thought that he, this was one of the games where he stole the game. Or if, if the Bruins had won, this would have been in a category of, you know, stealing games. Um, obviously, Tuka's gotten criticism for not doing that in the playoffs enough, which is, you know, ludicrous because he's stolen his fair share of playoff games. Um, yeah, let me remind you about Game 3 of the Conference Finals in 2019, you know. Um, but anyway, this was one of the games where he gave you a chance to win. Um, the the Tukarest gave the Bruins all the chances they possibly could get to win this game. You know, saves in the first period, the ridiculous saves in overtime, you know, that ridiculous pad stack save on Ovechkin in the third period. Um, that, yeah, Ovechkin had a lot of net to shoot at, but, you know, if he shot it any higher, he would have shot it right into uh, Kuznetsov back, Kuznetsov's backside. Um, but that was a ridiculous save. And then he made that save in overtime on, I think it was Orlov, where, yeah, Orlov had a lot of net, and he kind of shot it right back into Rask's pads. But, you know, anyway, that's a high-pressure save. So he was unbelievable. You know, Vrana scores in the shootout. Not much you can do about that. Um, and, you know, I don't know what it is about the Bruins in the shootout. You know, ironically enough, the Bruins had won both of their shootout shootout um, games this year. In the first game of the season against the Devils, and then they won another shootout. I think it was against Philly. Ironically, DeBrusque scored in that one. Um, you know, didn't was the first guy up, didn't score. Uh, Pasternak and Marchand both denied. So it was, you know, I, I, I hate to... I hate to be one of those people that like harps on, oh, why wasn't this guy out in the shootout? Um, because it's like, who cares? It's a skills competition. You know, it's like they sent Pasternak and Marchand out there. Those guys are you're arguably your two best goal scorers. Nothing wrong with that. You know, DeBrusque has been in the doghouse, um, I think, you know, rightfully so. But yeah, I would have liked to see McAvoy out there. Probably would have liked to see Bergeron out there, but you know, as I think I've said before, I don't think you need to waste Patrice Bergeron's energy to have him go in a shootout. Because, like, at the end of the day, it's one point. You know, I know that points are important, especially this season. But I just, like, you know what? I I don't know. I, I don't really care about Bergeron not going in a shootout. You know, because it's like, yeah, Pasternak and Marchand out there. They should have been out there to score. Um, and they didn't. And, you know, so be it. It happened. You know, you lose a game to a good team, but, you know, yikes. The the energy and the, I just, I don't know. It was one of those games where they played in stretches. They didn't play a good 60-minute game. This was more just like you played well in bits in, in, in bits and spots. Or you, you played well in spots. Jeez. Um, so, you know, obviously... Losing in the shootout, you know, Chara being back at the Garden, I think that was nice that they gave him, you know, a salute from some of the season ticket holders. You know, obviously it must feel different without fans. You know, sound like a broken record saying that, but I'm hoping that once fans get back, you know, they can give him a true ovation because it, it can't be stated enough how much he meant to the Bruins organization, to the city of Boston, and really just the region of New England, to be perfectly honest. Like, he signaled, you know, a change in 
you know, how we, I don't want to say how we approach hockey because I think there have always been hockey crazy fans here, but, you know, him coming here in 2006, you know, I know it took them a couple years to get to be, you know, a really good contender, but it was like the Bruins never signed him. They never signed Mark Savard. I don't think the Bruins would be in the position they are right now. Um, so I think like people have to realize like the Bruins were not good in the mid 2000s, you know, after, after Thornton left, you know, it was just like, just kind of average. And it was like the Bruins swung for the fences in that 06 off season, brought in Chara, brought in Mark Savard. And, you know, sadly, Mark Savard, I don't think meant as much to the Bruins organization as Chara did. You know, it's unfortunate based on the the injuries that he had, that he wasn't a bigger part of, you know, the championship team in 2011, even though he technically was on the roster. Um, But it was like, yeah, you know, means so much to, to, to the team. So um, it was good to see him get recognized. You know, I felt like there's more conversation about, you know, Chara and whether the Bruins made the right decision actually leads me into um, our first mailbag question. So this is a, question from my good friend Nick Peranick. We went to uh, Springfield together, so he wanted to know. Um, and so this is what he said to me last night. He said, I want you to be rash and tell me, you know, who, who's in a better position, the Bruins with their young D or Char with the Capitals? So basically, uh, uh, basically a pretty big, like, hot take type question. Um, so I think to this point in the season, um, it's kind of, and I know that this is kind of a cop-out. I know this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I think it's played out pretty well for both teams. You know, I think that first for the Capitals, you know, they're a team that, you know, need needed, you know, some solid, needed a solid, solid in their own end defender. And someone who, you know, can give them 16 to 17 minutes a night, can play solid defense, and give them another veteran, you know, leader. And I think that the Capitals are getting exactly what they what they thought they were getting. You know, not paying him very much money, not playing him as much as maybe he did last season or last couple seasons, but you know, being kind of a third pair defenseman, but being a solid solid voice for that team. You know, and I know that team already, you know, is a pretty a pretty, you know, heavily fortified group with veterans. You know, you have Ovechkin, you have Backstrom, um, you know, even Carlson. You know, these guys have been around the block. You know, they've been in the league for quite a long time. But, you know, bringing in someone like Chara, I think, just helps reinforce that group. So I think it's worked out well for the Capitals. I mean, obviously it has. They're in first place in the division uh, with 20, is it 29? Or maybe, no, it's 30 points because they won last night. Uh, So the Capitals in first place. And I think that Obviously, at the current moment, with the Bruins being a little shorthanded, thanks to Lausanne being hurt, you know, I think that maybe you would lean towards the Capitals, but I think that, you know, based on how Lausanne played in the, you know, time that he did before he got hurt in Lake Tahoe, you know, he looked fine playing on the top pair with McAvoy. You know, Jakob Zaboral, to me, has been more impressive. You know, and that's not to say that Lausanne hasn't been that impressive, but like Zaboral has been really good. He made a really good play last night on a two on one. I forget what point it was, but you know, totally taking away the pass and played that two on one perfectly. I think it was Oshi 
and someone else in on a two-on-one, and he played it perfectly. And it's just like, you know, whoa. I thought that, you know, hearing a lot of things on Bruins' Twitter about, you know, how good Zaboral was in AHL last year, and I kind of was, okay, you know, good to see that, but how is that going to translate into the pro, into the NHL? And it's translated really well, you know, and this is something that, I think it was Bruins Network on Twitter tweeted something that Jay Leach, the Bruins um, head coach in Providence, does not nearly get enough credit for, you know, developing some of these young players and getting them ready to play. And, you know, you can see it in Zaboral that he is just a really solid player. And, you know, I think that I was, you know, unsure at first about, okay, is this really the the right thing to do to let Chara go in a season that's going to, you know, really test these youngsters, but these guys are passing the test. You know, I think that Vakaninen has had some some issues, you know, maybe be thrown maybe being thrown into roles that are a little too much for him, but I thought that, you know, he 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 was able to play through it a little bit. Um, you know, whether it was playing with McAvoy, whether it was playing on the third pair, you know, I think that the Bruins made the right decision. I know that you know, some people would disagree, you know, and say that, oh, the Bruins really could use Achara. But again, you know, I go back to what I said either last week or two weeks ago. You know, the Bruins really wanted to go with the youth. And, you know, you're, they, they, they were going to be asking Chara, you know, to be playing the amount of minutes he's playing in, in Washington, but be a guy that was going to be a healthy scratch every once in a while. And it's like, obviously if you're Chara and you feel like you want to still play, you're not going to agree to that. And it's just like, I don't think you should blame the Bruins for wanting to go young with like the decor. And I know everyone's going to be like, Oh, well, you know, they brought back Kevin Miller, but it's the, those things are not the same. I hate to break it to some people, but it's like, you know, you signed Miller. Okay. Maybe you signed him for too much money and that's fine and all that. But you know, Chara signed for, 800,000 in Washington, the Bruins in theory could have brought Kevin Miller and Chara back, you know, signing Kevin Miller didn't mean that they weren't going to sign Chara. They weren't deciding between the two. I can't believe I have to explain that, you know, but I don't know. Maybe it's just people that just want to be angry that the fact that they have Kevin Miller and, you know, he's not been playing in the last couple of games is surprise, surprise. He's had some, you know, he's had an injury flare up, but you know, I don't know. It's I, I don't really want to spend my time having that conversation again. Um, but the con the, the those two signings have nothing to do with each other. Um, so, you know, to to answer Nick's question, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think the Bruins have made out well. I think Washington has made out well. You know, I think you won't know the full answer of this until the season's over. You know, who got further in the playoffs? You know, did Washington or the Bruins, did they play each other in the playoffs? You know, who won? Was Chara, you know, uh, a factor? Um, I think that you'll have to wait and see. So before I get to my other mailbag questions about the Bruins, um, Bruins bring in Jared Tenorti um, off waivers last week. Has played 88 career games, 89 played last night uh, for the Bruins, made his debut. I thought he looked okay. You know, him playing with Clifton, I thought, yeah, a couple times they were hemmed in in their own end. And I'll be honest, like, 
I know that everyone likes Clifton and the way that he plays and he's aggressive and, you know, really takes the play to the other team. But I have to tell you, he really concerns me in, in his own end. You know, I feel like he makes a lot of mistakes. And I think that, yes, that's fair for, for a young player, but it's just like, yikes. They had him play with Tenorti, the new guy who, you know, clearly is still learning the Bruin system. I thought that he actually wasn't bad last night. You know, I know that some people will complain that, oh, okay, well, you know, you have Vakanine and why are you giving ice time to a guy like Tenorti? Well, you know, with Lausanne being out for a decent amount of time, I think it made sense to bring in a guy who's kind of a bigger body and you bring in someone who's dirt cheap. You know, he's making 700000 and he's not, it's not like he's 35. You know, it's not like the Bruins brought in an old guy. You know, Tenorti's 29, he's only played, he's played under 100 career games, so... I thought that he looked okay last night. I'd be curious to see how much he plays. Um, I did want to get to one more note about that game, if you guys were obviously you're watching, and you know what happened with uh, Trent Frederick and Alex Ovechkin got in each other's faces a couple times, which I thought was great. Great to see that Trent Frederick still is, you know, not really scared of anyone. Uh, you know, went at Tom Wilson a couple times. He didn't drop the gloves. I was really hoping that would happen. Um, but, yeah, well, we all saw the skirmish. We all saw Ovechkin spear Trent Frederick and get two minutes for roughing. Oh, and, you know, got fined $5,000, which is chump change to Alex Ovechkin, you know, who has millions of dollars. And it's just like, I, I hate that stuff. Spearing guys in the groin, like, what are we doing here? You know, and it's like, you know what? I don't want to hear that Marshan stuff because I'll be honest, I was pissed off when Marshan did that to Jake Dotson a couple years ago on Tampa Bay, and he got suspended for that. I was pissed because it's like, that's, that, that's, that's childish. Like, what are you doing? Like, we're playing a game. It's just like, I, I think it's just embarrassing that Alex Ovechkin had to stoop to that level and spear a guy in the groin. Like, really? Are we really going to do that? I just, I don't know. I just, it, it's lame. It's just like, there's no place in the game for that. He should be suspended. Like, and I'm not even going to tell you if Marshan did that. That's five in a game, and that's probably a five-game suspension for him. You know, it's just like <laughs> we're sending the message that that's okay, basically. That you're just going to get two minutes for spearing someone. And I don't want to hear that crap from Capitals fans. Oh, it wasn't a spear. No, like he got his stick right in the breadbasket. Like, what are, what are we talking about? He didn't spear him. It's like, I don't know. It's just, it's, there are so many words I want to say right now, and I know I shouldn't, but like, it's, it's such a gutless play to spear a guy in the groin. Like, get out of here. It's just, you're, it's like, if you want to, you know, give, give guys cross checks and stuff, like, I just like, I don't know. It's just like, I don't expect that from someone like Ovechkin, but I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's, it's stupid that he had to stoop to that level and he had to spear someone. Oh, like Frederick totally nobody. It's like, no, he didn't. I don't think Trent Frederick is expecting Alex Ovechkin to be an absolute child and spear him in the groin. Like, get out of here. It's the most childish play in the NHL. Like, get out of here. Like, I don't want to hear any defense for that. It's just dumb. Should have gotten at least a game suspension for that. You know, I don't know really if he has a record, if he's ever been suspended, but it's like, 
really like we're just gonna find him five thousand dollars oh it's the maximum amount like five thousand dollars to alex ovechkin like really he's probably the highest paid player you know in in like recent or i don't know exactly but he's paid a lot of money and five thousand dollars is nothing um so i promised we'd get to the bruins mailbag questions um so i got one of them from nick so this is another question um from my buddy sean Sean Montgomery, give you a shout out, bud. Uh, Sean plays for the uh, Suffolk Rams, a D3 hockey. I believe that they're one of the only D3 conferences or D3 schools that are playing. So a uh, shout out to him. So Sean wanted to know uh, why Anders Bjork has been kind of in and out of the lineup, why he's been scratched a couple times. Um, he did play last night, and um, I thought that uh, it was a good question, good timing, Sean, on the question. Um so I think last night, you know, before I get to, you know, the actual question, last night I thought he was good. You know, I thought that he really did a good job with on that fourth line with Sean Corrali. And, you know, it's like I said, I think maybe it's time that the Bruins and, you know, us as fans need to start uh, kind of reevaluating what he is. And, you know, not expecting him to be a goal scorer, but expecting him to kind of be a good energy line, bottom six type guy. And he played really well last night. So... Sean, I think that it's a combination of a couple things. You know, I think that the Bruins have been, I think recently in the last, you know, whatever slide they've been on, 2-4-1 and one in their last seven games, um, I think that the Bruins are looking for guys who, you know, are going to are, are going to play with energy consistently. And, you know, whether that's, whether, whether that's forechecking, whether that's, you know, getting back on defense, whether that's, you know, getting pucks to the net, whether that's scoring goals, you know, I just think that too often you only see flashes from Anders that, you know, only ever so often do you see him, you know, making a really skilled play, you know, whether that's getting the puck out on a breakout or, you know, setting someone up, but it's just like too often you're not, you're seeing him not finish the play. You know, and you're not seeing him being able to bury the chances that he's getting. And he's not getting as many chances now. And it's like, you need him to start burying the chances. Um, You know, and again, I I don't think the Bruins are expecting him to score 20 goals a season or that type of stuff. But it's like, you have to be able to score a little bit. Um, And I think that all too often you're seeing some guys, you know, and that's not just Bjork. Like, there are other guys who I think, you know are just playing, you know, and aren't really making much of a difference. Um, And I think that goes for some other guys, too. I think Jake DeBrusque, too, you know, that it's like you need to elevate your how you play. And I think that, you know, the Bruins might be hard on Anders because they, you know, expect a lot from him or they, you know, want him to succeed. And, you know, I don't know, is benching him maybe the right thing to do? Maybe, maybe not. You know, are the Bruins benching the right guys? You know, maybe that's another question. You know, should the Bruins be benching DeBrusque? And I honestly feel like they should, you know. But then again, it comes back to this where it's like Jake DeBrusque is in his fourth season. He should be past getting benched. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of at the end of my rope with him. And I kind of hope the Bruins will trade him um, because it's just, he's just not making a difference. And I think at times Bjork is kind of in that category but at least, like, he's an aggressive four-checker, you know, and at least he can be a useful player on the penalty kill. 
And that's what makes me believe that the Bruins are going to hang on to him and maybe not trade him, that maybe DeBrusque is the guy to be traded. Um, because at least Anders gives you some value. I mean, I think the Bruins would like it to be a little more consistent. I mean, I think that they'd like to bear him to bury some more chances, be a little bit more consistent. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, when you have games that are bad, like last weekend, you know, some guys get lumped into it and some guys are like, okay, you were playing like more than a passenger. You were playing more like a passenger in this game. Um, and so we're going to sit you, but I don't think like it's, necessarily a negative thing i think that maybe we look at benchings and you know being scratched as like a purely negative thing um but you know it'll be interesting to see you know what the rest of his season looks like you know do the bruins end up trading him you know what do they end up doing with him i think that that's going to be interesting um another last bruins thing before we move on um or actually i did want to get to some trade thoughts but um, my f- good friend, Alex Movasli or Movas as he's known, um, asked me a very interesting question the other day. Uh, and what's the big biggest hurdle the Bruins need to clear in order to be, you know, playoff contenders, be like a truly contending team. Um, and that's kind of how I took the question, you know, that it's like, what's stopping them from being, you know, legit, legit contenders? Because, Honestly, I think right now, especially right at the current moment, the Bruins don't, Bruins don't really look like a true contender. And so, you know, I think, Alex, to answer your question, uh, it's scoring at even strength. I think that that's the biggest thing that the Bruins need to kind of clear and kind of be consistent at if they are going to be a team that's going to consistently challenge, um, you know, the top teams for the Cup this year. Um, and the Bruins, obviously, scoring on the power play has never really been a problem for them. you got David Pasternak, who's one of the, if not the best, pure goal scorer in the league um, on that power play unit. you got guys who are really solid, and you're able to score at a pretty consistent clip on the power play. But I think that the Bruins have been having some trouble, and honestly, they've had this trouble for a couple of years now, is being able to score goals at even strength. And specifically goal scoring from guys that are not on the first line. And so secondary scoring, you know, you need to get goals at even strength from guys like Craig Smith, Jake DeBrusque, Nick Ritchie, you know, Krejci. I know that he's not really a goal scorer, but you need to see some production from him. You know, Bjork, uh, Jack Stadnika, you know, any of the guys that are playing on the second or the third line mainly are the guys that kind of, need to be able to do that consistently. And so, you know, Alex, to go further on your question, I think that, you know, that's the area the Bruins need to improve in. And that means, you know, either that they hope the guys on the current roster are going to be able to, you know, be a little bit more consistent, or does this mean that they're going to go out and trade for someone that can, you know, help them? You know, and that's one of the things the Bruins did really well in 2019, that in 2019, the Bruins had some trouble at the like up to the deadline in secondary scoring. And what did they do? They go out and get a guy like Charlie Coyle. They go out and get a guy like Marcus Johansson. And they were unbelievable in that 2019 cup run. You know, those were two of the Bruins' best players through the entirety of that cup run. And why? Because they did a lot of damage at five on five. And so, you know, can the Bruins get some production from guys like that through a trade or, you know, do they 
just hope that one of those guys can break out, you know, on the current roster. Um, so I think that leads me into my last Bruins thought is, you know, what's the trade deadline going to look like? Um, you know, uh, Bob McKenzie was on NBCSN during one of the uh, intermission breaks last night and, you know, saying that the Bruins probably are going to be active. You know, and I think that to me, I think they should be going after uh, a guy like Philip Forsberg or uh, someone like Kyle Palmieri or maybe even Taylor Hall um, to go see if they can get a player like that to, you know, really solidify them at five on five because I think that there are some young players, you know, that I mentioned earlier that aren't really doing the job that they should. And I think that if the Bruins were to go out and get someone like I just mentioned, it starts with Jake DeBrusque in a first-round pick. Um, and I know that some people maybe don't want to trade him, but it's just like, I don't know what he has shown you this season to, you know, prove that he really belongs, you know? And I think, like, you have to really start thinking about this season. And if you really want to make a deep run and you're going to just go forward with this roster, you're not going to make it very far. You're just not going to. I hate to break it to some people, but... If you look at this roster right now, I don't think this roster is getting out of the East playoffs. I don't think so. I think Washington beats you in a seven-game series at this moment. Um, I think that, you know, as we saw last night, you know, you have someone out of the lineup. You need someone to create chances. Bruins really couldn't do that last night. So I think the biggest need, go out and get a goal scorer that can improve, you know, what you do at five on five. And I know there are some people, oh, well, you know, you have Kasha, maybe see what he can do. But it's like, I don't know. I think that I've seen close to enough from him to know that they kind of need a little bit more. So I think that that's my first thing. Go out and get a goal scoring forward. And then I've mentioned this before, but I think maybe go out and get another defenseman, you know, if it's possible. But I also think, you know, I want to see what Tenorti can do. Because so... If he ends up playing really well, then it's like, okay, maybe you see what he can do. But I think getting like kind of a veteran-ish defenseman, not someone who's super old, you know, not someone who's in their mid-30s, but maybe someone who gets bought out or someone who, you know, you could get in a small trade for like a late round pick or something, you know, look into that. Because I think that in a playoff run, you can never have too many defensemen. Um, and especially in this particular year, if, you know, guys can randomly pop up on the COVID list, you know, you never know. So I think that the Bruins should be in on that as well. Um, so not just, you know, a goal scorer, but someone who can come in and be a solid defenseman. So uh, as we take a look at the rest of the Bruins schedule, uh, they'll play the Capitals again. Uh, tomorrow night at the Garden, and then the Bruins will play a couple more games at the Garden. I think that I think that this might be the middle of their like big home stand of like eight straight games at home. No, it's not. It's the end of the month. So uh, for the for the next week for the Bruins, it's tomorrow at the Garden against the Caps. Um, they will play Sunday evening at the Garden against the Devils, um, and then Tuesday. They are back on the island to play the Islanders for the third time on the road. I don't know why they haven't played the Islanders at home yet. Um, and then the Bruins will play a pair of games against the Rangers, uh, both at the Garden next week, um, Thursday and then Saturday. So the 11th and the 13th. Uh, 
So taking a look around the rest of the NHL, um, the Maple Leafs are still, you know, playing at a really high level. And that's, you know, been a source of some contention for some people because I think that you look at that division and people are like, oh, well, you know, no wonder they're blowing the doors off the division because it's not a very good division. And they're right. They're right. To be perfectly honest, like, it's not a great division. You've had some teams that have underachieved considerably um, in this division. You have Ottawa who, you know, and this is what you're going to see. If you have a team, a division with seven or eight teams, you play the same teams, and you are miles away better than the other teams. You know, so both things can be true. The division can be bad, and the Maple Leafs can be playing at a really high level. Both things can be true. Like, I really don't want to hear the, oh, well, they're playing in a trash division. Well, that's true, but they also are playing well, and, you know, I don't know. I don't really, you know, again, this goes back to the Bruins-Toronto thing where, you know, everyone wants to pile on the Leafs and be like, oh, like, they're not even that good. You know, oh, here we go again. They're getting hot, and it's like, I mean, I don't know. I don't think you want to be talking a lot of smack if the Bruins play them again in the playoffs, because it very well could be in the Stanley Cup final, you know? And I just think people need to be very wary that uh, you've had Toronto's number, but at some point they're going to get you. At some point they're going to get you, you know? So, you know, it's it, it, they're, they're playing well, and I think that that's good for them. You know, we'll see how they do in the playoffs, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, you have division playoffs. Toronto could very well roll through the, those first two rounds, you know, and be playing with a lot of momentum. And it almost doesn't matter who they're playing, you know, in in the in the next round. So you know, we'll see. Uh, but they've opened up a nine point lead in the division over Winnipeg. Um, Edmonton is ten points back. Uh, Montreal still in a playoff spot, um, three points ahead of fifth place Calgary. Um, so those are the four playoff teams in the North. Uh, Vancouver has been a really big disappointment this season, uh, nine and fifth, nine fifteen and two, um, in their first twenty six games, only twenty points, uh, not playing very well. Defense has been bad, and the goaltending has not been great either. You know, Braden Holtby has struggled. Uh, Thatcher Demko has struggled too. I know a lot of people were, you know, up on him in the playoffs last year because he had a shutout or two shutouts in a row or like something like that, um, but. Uh, they're, they just really are, are leaky defensively um, in that division. So they are really struggling. In the Central, Tampa Bay and Carolina, both atop the division with 31 points. Tampa Bay, two games in hand on Carolina. Florida also has 30 points. So those three teams in the Central are playing really, really well. It's really good to see Florida playing well. Um, Carolina, it's always good to see them playing well. Tampa Bay playing well. Um, and Chicago, surprisingly, in a playoff spot. Five points clear of Columbus for that last playoff spot in the Central. Nashville is an interesting team to watch, I think, because of possibility that they trade some guys, you know, if they're out of a playoff spot by a certain time. But, uh, yeah, they're eight points back in the playoffs, so things aren't looking great in Nashville. And then in the East, you have Washington. Uh, The Islanders, I believe, jumped the Bruins thanks to a win last night. Um, so the Bruins now in third place in the division, Washington with 30 points, Islanders are 28. The Bruins do have two games in hand 
on the Capitals and the Islanders. So that's something of note. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh tied for that last playoff spot. Philadelphia getting the tiebreaker at the moment because they have two games in hand. The Rangers have started to play a little bit better. They're still six points back of the playoffs, but they've been playing a little bit better recently. Um, I think I watched some of their highlights the other night. Uh, they played Buffalo. They had a top line of Zibanejad, uh Lafreniere, and Buchnevich. Um, on that top line, I thought they played really well in the first period, the highlights that I watched. Um, so that might be something to watch. I don't know if that's uh, because of injury or if that you know is a, a different lot, a combination that they're trying. Um, but I'm wondering if that is working out a little bit for them. So the Rangers playing a little bit better, but still have a ways to go uh, to be playoff contenders. Uh, Vegas still atop the West with 29 points. So they've had a number of games that have been postponed. So they actually have four games in hand on St. Louis with a one-point game, one point advantage. Colorado and Minnesota also in playoff spots. You have Los Angeles, who, you know, out of nowhere was playing really good hockey. They've kind of cooled off a little bit, but they're still playing relatively well. And Minnesota has been a really good surprise. Uh, they've been a lot of fun to watch. Kaprizov has been really good, their rookie. Um, he's been a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Matt Dumba had a overtime winner in like the last second last weekend against the Kings. That was a really exciting game. Um, so Minnesota's playing at a good level. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of talk about uh, Jordan Binnington and that uh, meltdown that he had during the uh, Sharks-Blues game last weekend. And yeah, it was kind of embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Not not really something that I would be proud of if I was him. Uh, he got pulled. I forget what point it was in the game, but decided to shove some, some Sharks players. So yeah, clearly he wasn't happy with himself how he was playing, but yeah, let me take it out on some other guys. So I don't know. That was kind of he made himself look uh, really stupid doing that. Um, so I think that's probably it for um, NHL and the Bruins. We went a lot on the Bruins, but there's a lot of Bruins stuff. Um, there's also a lot of Celtic stuff. So that's what we will get to next. Uh, do have a mailbag question from my good friend Derek Welch. Uh, so that's where we'll get started on the Celtics. Um, so Derek's question. Uh, who should be starting at center right now, Robert Williams or Daniel Tice? So Derek actually has two questions, so we'll start with this one. So, you know, first of all, great question, Derek. Um, the Celtics have been rocking with uh, Daniel Tice uh, starting at center for most of the season, um, almost the entire season, I think. So whether that's him and Thompson in the lineup or he's the lone big, you know, I think sometimes that depends on uh, matchups, but it seems like they've been going to the double big lineup recently, and it's kind of helped a little bit. Uh, the Celtics have won three straight. They're playing at, you know, one of the, they're they're playing at a, at a really good level right now. I think offensively, uh, defensively, obviously there's still some work, but I think, you know, in spots they have been playing defensively. So, kind of getting off topic a little bit here. So, I think that Robert Williams is fantastic coming off the bench. You know, he gives the bench that added lift. You know, he and Peyton Pritchard have been have, have a great chemistry off the bench. And I think that that's one of the reasons why Brad Stevens brings him off the bench. You know, because he has good chemistry with Peyton Pritchard and has good chemistry with some of the guys on that bench. Um, but also, you know, is great playing with Kemba Walker. 
you know, he's great playing with certain guys that throw him lobs. You know, the, the Celtics are still one of the worst teams in the NBA at throwing lobs. Like, my goodness, if you saw some of the lobs that, like, Jeff Teague threw him or, you know, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, it's like, I understand that Robert has an amazing catch radius. You could throw him the ball literally anywhere, but my God, some of those lobs were atrocious in the last couple of games. So, you know, I think that he's got good chemistry with, with Peyton Pritchard. And so I think at the moment, I think I'm okay with Tice starting. Um, and it has a lot to do with the energy that, you know, if you have Robert Williams starting, you know, you're taking away some of that energy bringing in off the bench. So, you know, if the Celtics say are struggling in the first quarter of a game and Robert Williams is in the game, you know, well, then who do you bring off the bench to provide that energy? Um, and so I think that's kind of the thought process I have is you want to bring him off the bench to provide energy. Um, and so I think you can still bring him off the bench, but I think they need to play him more minutes, especially down the stretch. I was glad to see that they put him in for a couple minutes late in the Clippers game. Um, hope probably for primarily defensive purposes because he's a really good shot blocker. Still gets caught out of position every every once in a while, but, you know, that's going to happen. Um, so I think, Derek, to answer your question, I think at the moment I'm okay with Tice starting. I kind of would like to keep it that way, you know, just because I think, you know, the same way that Robert plays really well with Peyton Pritchard, I think Daniel Tice plays really well with Kemba Walker. You know, if you saw the end of that Wizards game, you know, the Celtics play, had a couple of nice you know, pick-and-pop plays, I think I'm remembering the plays correctly, where Tice hit, like, three jump shots in a row late in the game. And that was one of the reasons why they were able to, you know, stay close late in that Wizards game and eventually able to get the win. You know, so I think you want to try to keep the the chemistry and those, you know, duos, you know, out there consistently, if, if, if that makes sense, that I think... There's something to be said for those two different, you know, groups of players out there at the same time. Um, you know, Kemba and and Robert Williams do play well together because, you know, Kemba's pretty good at throwing up lobs. But um, I think that I'm okay with Tice starting at the moment. Um, so Derek has another question that I'll get to in a moment. Um, but it's been good to see the Celtics winning three straight games, two against, you know, fairly quality opponents. You know, I think the Pacers are a quality opponent. I know that their record doesn't really say that they are. Um, but I thought the win against the Clippers, I mean, that's a quality opponent, even if Kawhi Leonard wasn't playing. Um, you know, Paul George was on fire in that first half, had 21 points. I think only had 11 points the rest of the way. So I thought the Celtics' defense did a little bit better on him in the second half. He did miss a lot of shots, which is uh, tending to happen a little more frequently. The uh, Clippers also... Played pretty poorly down the stretch last Sunday when they lost to the Bucks, um, but I think the Celtics in their late game defense is getting a little bit better. You know, you saw on uh, on the Wizards game, I thought that the Celtics and Brad Stevens handled that late game situation really, really well. Um, you know, going for the quick twos instead of just pulling up and trying to hit threes to tie the game. You know, Jason Tatum went inside, drove in to get layups. Celtics got stops. Tatum was able to win the game, and then. You know, on that potential winning shot by Bradley Beal, Celtics trap him, you know, and almost makes that shot. It was like, okay, 
Bradley Beal makes that shot, you know, whatever, tip your hat to him. Amazing shot. But they did a really good job on that um, in in those last few minutes, especially defensively, as they were able to get stops. And then Kemba Walker finding Daniel Tice for, like, three straight jump shots. Um, so I thought that they handled that well. I thought, you know, in the Pacers game, Kemba was on fire. He was on fire from three against the Clippers. Um, so I think that it's a much-needed lift for Kemba to be able to score, you know, 20-plus points. Um, because I think in the last couple of games, you know, Jason's had a tough time. Uh, Jalen Brown had 14 points in the first quarter um, on Tuesday night at four points the rest of the game. So the Celtics, I think, really needing Kemba Walker to, you know, provide some offense. Um, and it seems like he's getting into a groove, which is just awesome. Um, and I think that this will be good for him to get some games in, you know, that he doesn't have to miss second of back-to-back. Celtics have a lot of days of rest, especially this week. And then obviously with the All-Star break, you know, he'll get some good, much-needed time off. So it's only good things that Kemba Walker is, you know, playing more for the Celtics. I think that, you know, some of the bench players have started to play a little bit better. You know, Pritchard, I think, has his games, has his good scoring games, like last game at 14 points off the bench. Um, I think that Jeff Teague has had some games where he's looked a little bit better. You know, I think that he kind of was a minus with the Celtics, like, not in terms of plus mo. I know that he was a minus player, plus minus, but like, it seemed like he was kind of having a negative effect on the team, like not like playing very poorly and playing very poorly. He was affecting the team badly. Um, but I think that he's played a little bit better as of late. You know, he's had a couple more, you know, blowing past the defender, getting to the hoop for a layup. Um, and so it's like you have to see more of that from him um, to get that, you know, consistent scoring off the bench. Um, so I don't know if you can rely on Pritchard to give you like 15 off the bench every night, um, but definitely on times and games when he does, you know, it's such a much needed lift. And, you know, obviously Robert Williams is a source of points off the bench as well. Um, and so I think that's also another reason why I like bringing him off the bench because he can, you know, score the basketball on lobs, you know, on plays near the basket. He's an unbelievable rebounder you know, can get those offensive rebounds, get those extra possessions, can go back up and, you know, get to the free throw line. He's an okay free throw shooter, but, you know, he's even developing to take those jump shots from 15, 16 feet, and he's, you know, fairly consistent at that. So, you know, I think that getting consistent scoring off the bench is another reason why I like Robert Williams coming off the bench. Um, So Celtics, with their final game, before the All-Star break tonight against the Raptors. The Raptors are going to be missing some key people, including Nick Nurse, who's still under COVID protocols, and I think Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, and OG Ananubi. I think all three of them um, won't be available tonight, so the Raptors will be very shorthanded. So, you know, hopefully the Celtics can get off to a good start, open up a big lead, and get some guys to rest. Um, but obviously, you know, still got to play the game because the Celtics have had a penchant for uh, not playing up to their opponents. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see tonight. Hopefully they can continue to play with the energy and the urgency they've been playing with the last three games. Um, But it's good to see. I think it's good to see the Celtics building some momentum into a break. 
because when they come back, you know, it's going to be a lot because they're going to be playing a lot of games, you know, games against tough teams. They got the the Nets coming out the first game after the All-Star break. So uh, Celtics have their work cut out for them, but hopefully they can finish strong um, before the All-Star break. So into the All-Star break, the Celtics have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown that will be playing in the games. They will also be participating in the three-point shootout. What is it? Three-point three point contest. It was like three-point shootout, whatever. It's the same thing. Um, but... Trying to, yeah. So the other NBA thing I was going to get to um, before the All-Star, I knew that there was something else I was forgetting. Uh, the Hawks fired uh, Lloyd Pierce the other day. Um, they were, four, I think they're 14 and 20 or something like that. Um, and, you know, so I think there was some, there was some chatter, I think, that there were players that, you know, were not fans of his and that, you know, maybe they were tuning out and stuff like that. Um, so... One of the concerns that I have about this, and, you know, you can fire a coach for whatever reason you see fit. Like, if you feel like your team just really needs a breath of fresh air, you know, and you need a new voice to listen to, you know, that's fair. But, I don't know, I just have concerns about a young team like Atlanta. You have Trey Young, John Collins, Kevin Herter, uh, Cam Reddish. You have a lot of young guys on that team. And, you know, one of the concerns about that is, you know, a young team like that needs direction, you know, and I think you need a coach to be there even through the rough times, you know, and I know that they're Atlanta is not really a great defensive team, but like, I don't know, there's something strange about that firing where it's like, I kind of am worried about a young team like that, that, you know, are they going to be okay with Nate? Well, Nate McMillan, obviously is a pretty successful NBA coach. He's coached a number of different teams. So, you know, they might be in good hands there, but I just think the idea of firing a coach with a young team is just, it leaves you kind of directionless. Um, and I don't know if Nate McMillan will take over, you know, is that going to be his job or are they going to search for a new jo- a new coach in that off season? Um, and that's one of the reasons why it like scares me about people actually wanting to fire Brad Stevens. You know, the Celtics, you know, believe it or not, are still a very young team. You know, you have Jalen Brown, you have Jason Tatum, they're they're young. You know, you don't have a lot of veteran, like, elder statesmen in this team. Um, And so, you know, my fear about if they actually went ahead and fired him, which they're not going to do, but they actually did, like, that doesn't send a great message to your organization. You know, that's like, you know, bordering on you don't have a direction if you fire your coach, you know? It's just like, again, you know, you have to deal with winning and losing. You have to deal with expectations, not meeting them and all that stuff. But it's just like, damn, if you're really going to fire the coach just because you're going through adversity and you're really honestly going through adversity for the first time in a very long time with Brad Stevens. It's like, say say what you will about him and the Celtics' inability to you know, get over the hump, say whatever you want. But the Celtics really have been a team that they've not had to deal with a lot of adversity. I mean, this is really the first season that it's like, okay, they have these crazy expectations. They're not meeting them. And there's been been a lot said about the team in the media. And, you know, it's really the first time that we've actually had this because 
you know, I know that, yeah, there was some stuff about after, you know, Kyrie left, but it was like, this is in season. I mean, this is stuff that is time sensitive, you know, in a way. So I don't know. It's just, it, it concerns me with the Hawks firing Lloyd Pierce and hoping that they'll be okay. Hoping, hoping that, you know, Nate McMillan can write the ship, you know, if he stays, that's great. If he doesn't, you know, see who they hire, but I don't know, just something, something off about that. Um, so with the All-Star game uh, Sunday at 8, the uh, All-Star draft is tonight at 8 on ESPN. Obviously, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, the captains, although it's actually just occurred to me that Durant's not playing. So I guess he's still going to captain the team. Um, LeBron James obviously will captain the other team. Um, so I think going back to the All-Star rosters, you know, kind of made my thoughts on about or made my thoughts known about you know certain guys getting snubbed but I thought some of the guys who got snubbed are going to actually be able to play in the game Devin Booker DeMontis Sabonis I think um, two guys that I thought got snubbed uh, but they'll be able to play so that's good for them Um, and then before the game not sure when these events start but before the game you have the three-point contest Jason Tatum Jalen Brown will be in that as well alongside Devin Booker uh, Steph Curry, Zach Levine, and Donovan Mitchell. Um, and then the skills challenge will take place. I'm not sure what, what will be first. Um, but in the skills challenge, it looks like it's Julius Randle, Zabonis, uh, Vucevic, Chris Paul, uh, Doncic, and I think Robert Covington, which is interesting. I'm wondering why he's in that. Um, and then the halftime will be the dunk, con- the dunk field, or the slam dunk will be at halftime. And the field was revealed yesterday. So Anthony Simmons uh, from Portland, Obi Toppin from the Knicks, and then Cassius Stanley from the Pacers. So they will be in the slam dunk. Only three guys this year, you know, probably want to get the contest done as quickly as possible so there can be a, you know, a quick transition into the second half of the game. I think that the it's the same um, style as they did last year's game where it's like whatever the total is, or I think it's like, it's some crazy math that they're playing to a certain number of points, you know, which will be interesting, create a little bit of kind of excitement. It'll be interesting interesting to see, um, you know, what that happens, what that creates. Hopefully the Celtics don't push themselves too hard. You know, I think it's good that Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum will be participating, you know, in probably one of the lighter, skills competitions not in the dunk not in the skills competition we'll see how much they play you know in the all-star game i don't think they should play that much i think it is important for Jalen because he is from atlanta for is from the atlanta area so um it'll probably be fun for him to compete in that i think it'll mean a lot to him but i'm hoping that he doesn't push himself too much um so taking a look at the last thing uh the rising stars I'm not sure if this is a. I'm not sure when this game is. Because um, it, ju- it just gives me the roster for the Rising Stars to so the American team and then the world team. Um, it's not going to. Okay. Read the fine, fine print. It will not be played this year, but the rosters were released. Uh, the USA team, there are a lot of people in the Celtic circles that were a little surprised that uh, Peyton Pritchard wasn't selected for the U.S. team, but, you know, now looking at that team, 
I'm not really sure who he would be, who he should get in over. Because you look at some of these guys, they've been good, you know, rookie players or second year players. Um, and it's like, I don't know, would he really get selected over LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, James Wiseman, Tyrese Halliburton, um, or Keldon Johnson? I don't know. You know, d- does it really matter? No, not really. You know, I think that people in the Celtics organization have, you know, recognized how good Pritchard's been. Has he been, you know, to that level? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but um, it is interesting you know, the, the names on that list. Cause it's really kind of the, the future of the NBA, the future of the NBA with the American players. And then on the world team, um, precious, precious Achua, uh, Nikhil Alexander Walker, um, Abid, Denny, Adija. I think it's, I think that's how you say it on the wizards. Um, RJ Barrett, Compazzo from the nuggets, Brandon Clark, uh, Dort from Oklahoma City, uh, Roy Hechimura from um, also the Wizards, uh, Michael Mulder, and then Theo Maladon. Uh, I honestly do not know who that is, but he is from France. And let me look at what team does he play for. He plays for Oklahoma City, so he's a rookie. I've never heard of him. Um, and then in the American roster. Uh, LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, Tyler Hero, DeAndre Hunter, Keldon Johnson, John Morant, Michael Porter Jr., Zion Williamson, and James Wiseman. Um, So all that festivities will be on Sunday. Um, So, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be with uh, the All-Star Game. You know, I still think it was kind of a mistake to do it, but I think it's for a good cause. It'll be benefiting HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, which is always a good thing um, to, to benefit those schools with the game being in Atlanta. So um, hopefully it'll do, it'll do some good. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much guys push themselves in the game. You know, I'm curious to see how well this plays out in all in one night. So I think the NBA trying to limit, you know, the amount of time um, in, um, like all in one place of so the league, just doing it in one night, I think is smart. So uh, it'll be exciting. You know, it's always a fun time to watch with the NBA, with maybe some players' families and um, in the stands. So I think that that will be exciting for, for Jalen Brown. Um, so two little things before we move on. Um, the second part of Derek's question, um, and he wanted to know my thoughts on the Celtics acquiring Nikola Vucevic, and Jeremy and uh, Jeremy Grant, Jeremy. I don't know why I just said that. Uh, Jeremy Grant. So I believe that there were some rumors um, last night and uh, part of today about the Celtics potentially being interested in both of these guys. Um, so. Um, Derek, I think I like, I think I like Jeremy Grant better. Um, I think that he's a better defensive player. Um, I think that he's, you know, more athletic. He's a guy who can score. Both of these guys are guys who can score guys who are pretty guys who pretty easily can get, you know, 20 and 10, you know, pretty, pretty easily. Well, maybe not 10 for, for Grant, but 
They're both guys who can score. I think I like Jeremy Grant as a defensive player a little bit better. Um, he also is not making as much as Vucevic. Vucevic is making $26 million over the next three years. Grant, about $19 million. So Grant, I think, is a really interesting player. I just don't know if the Pistons would trade him, considering that they just signed him this offseason. You know, I think that the Celtics would really need to convince them and would really need to put in a better package. So I think Grant is the, I think in my opinion, Grant's the better player. I know that Vucevic is an all-star and Grant isn't, but I think Grant's the better player, but I think that it would take more to get Grant. Vucevic, I think, is, you know, one one could argue that Vucevic is better, um, and he, is a, he isn't a fantastic player. You know, he's an all-star for second year in a row. Uh, I think I think averages 20 and 10 or near that. Um, I don't think that he would cost as much because I think the magic might be, you know, selling off. But then again, you know, now it comes into now the, the play in thing kind of comes into play about the I'm not sure how it works, but like it's the ninth and 10th seed. So it's like a team out to the 10th seed could con- could conceivably make the playoffs. So does that mean a team like Orlando, you know, do they kind of wait and see what they have? you know, before they make trades. But I think that they're a team that they're going to be looking to sell off some guys. Um, You know, Vucevic, I think, would be the biggest name that you could get from Orlando. But I also think there's some other guys like Gordon, like Fournier, like Terrence Ross that you could possibly get off that roster. Um, So I think that Grant's a better player. It's probably going to take more to get him. Uh, Vucevic... You know, maybe maybe they're about equal as a player. Vucevic, I don't know if it's going to take you as much. But then again, here's kind of something that I just realized and I read in the paper last week that the Celtics are hard-capped. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds like the Celtics can only use a certain amount of that trade exception. And I think that they can only use about $19 million. Now, I don't know if there are ways around that. You know, can they move salary around to you know, accommodate a player like Vucevic who's making $26 million, you know, or does that mean that they're set at 19 and can't do anything? Ironically, Grant makes right at $19 million. So I don't know if that, if, if, if that will play into it at all. Um, but I think, you know, the Celtics probably will be in on some other guys, some other players too. You know, I think that they have two other trade exceptions that are uh, from Cantor and Poirier's roster spot, um, that like Cantor's is four million, Poirier is two and a half. So the Celtics, in theory, could sign someone for, you know, two and a half or four million in addition to you know the trade exception that they have now. So you've heard Danny say that, you know, if, if the right deal is there, the Celtics will pull the trigger um, and use that trade exception. But if not, then they might use it in the summer. And, like, I, I don't really see a huge issue with that, you know, because to be perfectly honest, you know, if you look at this Celtics team and you look at, okay, if the Celtics go out and, you know, upgrade this roster as best as they can, would that team be good enough to win a championship? You know, let's say the Celtics go out and get Jeremy Grant. Let's say they go out and get, you know, someone that's cheap, someone that can help with bench scoring, you know, is that team good enough to win a championship? Is that team good enough to beat, let's say, the Clippers or the Lakers? 
if the Celtics re- if the Celtics think that okay, no matter what we do, don't know if we're going to you know win a championship. And so if that's what Danny thinks, then my guess is they'd use this exception in the summer to then okay, how do we build our roster even better? You know, how can we go out and get maybe an even better player than a Grant or a Vucevic? Like, is there someone else out there that they could get that they think could fit their roster even better and kind of push them over the top? Um, but I think that if the right deal is there, that they will they will make a trade and they will use part they will use this trade exception or use part of it um, because act because technically they can't use all of it. They actually can only use nineteen million. But you know, obviously, if Vucevic is being mentioned in these rumors, well then there's probably something that they can do to move money around to, you know, accommodate that, that contract or they can't, I'm, I'm not sure. I might be, I might be wrong there. Um, but Derek, appreciate the questions as always. Um, so I think that before we move on, I'll take a look at the NBA standings and where everyone stands as we are at the all-star break about roughly halfway through the season. The Celtics will be at the halfway point. Uh, after tonight's game, they will have played 36 games out of 72. So in the East, you have the Sixers a half game ahead of the Brooklyn Nets for first place. Sixers at 24-12. and 12. Uh, The Nets in second, the Bucks in third. And then the Celtics are in a distant fourth, five and a half games back of first place, three games back of third place. And then this is where things get really crazy. Uh, the Knicks are in fifth place right now, Charlotte in sixth, then the Heat and the Raptors are seventh and eighth, and then Pacers and Bulls, the ninth and tenth seeds. Um, so that's what's also interesting with the Atlanta Hawks is they, you know, could potentially have a chance to get in the playoffs being a game out of um, that playoff spot. Because I think it's tenth seed for each conference, I'm pretty sure. Um and then in the West, um, it is it is worth mentioning that it worth mentioning that the Pistons are ten and twenty five, that they are kind of pretty far out of the playoff, out of the playoff structure, and the Magic are too. So that then leads me to believe that those two teams might be more willing to be sellers. I'm not again. I'm not sure how much you know the Pistons would be willing to give away Grant. You know seeing that they just signed him in the offseason, I would think that that would mean that the Pistons would have to be blo- you know, blown away by a trade offer to trade him. Um, so in the West, you have the surprising Phoenix Suns that have won 8 of 10, three straight games. They are now, they have vaulted to second place in the West. Um, so Utah obviously still in first at 27 and 9. Um, come back down to earth a little bit, but still 27 and 9. For the first, through the first 36 games, pretty impressive. Um, they get Phoenix in second, then the Clippers and the Lakers in third place and fourth place, respectively, both three and a half games back of first. The Clippers, or uh, excuse me, the Lakers have kind of struggled a little bit recently. Obviously, still missing Anthony Davis. He'll be out for a decent amount of time. But, you know, any team with LeBron James, it's hard to count them out um, at all. So... Then in fifth, you have uh, Portland, followed by San Antonio, Denver, and Dallas in sixth, seventh, and eighth. Then the Warriors are right there in ninth place, as are the Grizzlies. New Orleans is, you know, fairly, is is pretty far back from that. Um, So things could get kind of interesting in the West. You know, not really sure if it's, I'm I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if, 
the Pelicans will, you know, start playing better. They're not really a good defensive team, so we'll kind of see there. Um, but things will be interesting. So the Celtics uh, finish their first half of the season tonight at 7 o'clock at the Garden, playing the Raptors, the shorthanded Raptors. So shorthanded Raptors. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, so we will move on to some baseball. Get to some Red Sox. They are playing uh, spring training. I think they've started a spring training game. They're playing the Orioles right now um, in their fifth spring training game at the moment. Um, so Bobby Dahlbeck has had a good start. He's hit a couple of home runs. Uh, some home runs the Red Sox have gotten from other guys as well. Um, Red Sox and the Orioles in the first inning right now. They are batting against the Orioles. Red Sox 2-2 two and two in their first two games. Um, you know, again, it's it's hard to read into, you know, certain guys and how they're performing um, in spring training. I think specifically the pitchers. Um, you know, I think that it's, you know, you, you don't want to get too down on a pitcher if maybe he has a rough outing. Um, but you also don't want to get too high and be like, oh, wow, this guy's going to be amazing. You know, like Evaldi throwing, you know, 97-99 the first inning of that first game. It's like, okay, well... You know, we we know that he can throw fast. You know, it's just maybe good to see that he's starting out doing that. Um, you know, I think that Nick Pavetta pitched yesterday and, you know, was all right. Garrett Richards kind of struggled in his first start. Um, but again, you know, it's spring training games. It's, you know, I wouldn't read into too much, you know, things happening. I know that I, you know, wrote that article about some guys to watch in spring training and, you know, as a disclaimer, you know, don't take the games too seriously, negative or positive. You know, I think that it's just, you know, interesting just to look at certain things about certain guys. You know, Bobby Dahlbeck, obviously, off to a good start. Hopefully that he can keep the strikeouts down. And, you know, it really looks like he'll, he's going to be that everyday first baseman for the Red Sox. Um, I think that the biggest thing with him is keeping the strikeouts down, seeing how he can be at, at first base defensively. Um, but it's good to know that the Red Sox do have a couple guys that are really versatile around the infield. Kike Hernandez, Marwin Gonzalez. You know, I think that the Red Sox going the, the utility man route, I think, makes a lot of sense. You know, guys that you can move around the lineup to different spots. You have those two guys who can play, you know, any of those infield positions. Can also play some outfield spots. Um, you know, one guy that I'm a little... Not, I don't want to say concerned about yet um, is Franchi Cordero, who the Red Sox got from the Royals in the Benintendi trade. Um, obviously, I think he had he he had maybe had tested positive for COVID, um, but I think is is on his way to returning or on his way to reporting to spring training. So, you know, definitely watch him and see how he does. You know, good chance that he's going to be the starting left fielder um, for the Red Sox, but I think that it's going to be an interesting season. You know, I think that there are things that you can maybe feel positive about for the Red Sox that it seems like, you know, the health of the team is going to be pretty good, you know, minus Chris Sale. Um, you know, watch how J.D. Martinez does in the first few weeks. You know, I think that he's definitely really motivated to try to prove that last season was an anomaly and he can get back to being an elite hitter. Um, so I think that, you know, offensively, I'm not overly concerned with uh, the Red Sox because I think that they're going to be able to 
hit with the best with the best of them in Major League Baseball and probably aren't going to have a lot of trouble scoring runs, but I think it's really the starting pitching. And, you know, do guys like Garrett Richards, Nick Pavetta, do they perform well or do they perform poorly? And do the Red Sox, you know, struggle to find, you know, starters who can give them consistent innings? You know, it'll be very interesting to see Eduardo Rodriguez and see, you know, what he gives the Red Sox. Does he show any, you know, signs of fatigue or signs of any, you know, potential things that, that'll flare up with him getting COVID last year. You know, is he physically healthy and ready to go? You know, it seems like he is. It seems like he said the right things, but, you know, it's hard to know. Um, but I think, you know, spring training game is underway. You know, good to tune into these games if they're on Nesson, if they're on ESPN. I think they're going to be, you know, games almost every day, you know, until uh, the season starts. I'm ex- hoping to have... I'm Eric Bellier back on the show. We can talk more baseball, kind of do a season preview, see what things are looking like for the Red Sox and for the Mets, for uh, Eric's favorite team. So just some other baseball news. Jackie Bradley signing a two-year contract with the Brewers last night, two years for $24 million. So it kind of was interesting that Jackie uh, lasted on the free agent market so long. Um, but I think that still holds value as a very good defensive player. Um, there are still, I think some people in Boston, I'm not going to name names, but there's some people in Boston that, uh, think he's overrated defensively and, uh, think that, oh, you just won one gold glove. Well, you know, I don't know. I hate to be this person, but like, were you actually watching the team? Like, do like, did you watch any Red Sox games? Like real question. It's just like his defensive ability. He's one of the he's one of the better defensive players in the league. Like, what are what are we doing? Like, did, like did did you not watch the Red Sox? Do you not know how good he is? Like, I don't know. You know, yes, could the Red Sox have brought him back? Maybe, but I think the Red Sox are pretty set with the roster that they have, and you know, I think Jackie should bring some you know good defensive principles to uh, Milwaukee and be a solid. Solid outfielder. Not sure if he'll be in center. Maybe he'll be in right. He's got a great arm. He's got really good defensive instincts. You know, he's quick. Um, but I think most it'll be most interesting to see what he does offensively. You know, does he improve? You know, is he a player that the Red Sox are like, oh, geez, maybe we should have signed him. But um, good for him. Glad that he was able to find a home. Um, it's too bad that. He couldn't have stayed here with the Red Sox because, you know, I always did really enjoy uh, watching him. But, you know, it's it's a business. You know, it's going to be what it's going to be. And the Red Sox chose to go in a different direction. And, you know, that's what it's going to be. So uh, I'll be interested to see how he does in Milwaukee. Um, and, yeah, it'll be interesting to pay attention to spring training games as we get closer to uh, the regular season Red Sox and uh Orioles playing right now, scoreless in the first inning. Red Sox 2-2 two and two in spring training. So they're playing Baltimore, and they think it's it's Baltimore, Tampa Bay, Minnesota, and Atlanta are the teams that they are playing in spring training. I think they're also playing the Pirates for two games. So now yeah, it'll be interesting to watch spring training as we uh, you know, kick things up and get closer to the start of the regular season. So... Before we get to college basketball and looking at bracketology, uh, I did want to talk about uh, NFL for a little bit. Um, 
the uh, Arizona Cardinals getting J.J. Watt last week. J.J. Watt announcing um, on Twitter, or was it? Maybe it was earlier this week um, that he announced he'll be joining DeAndre Hopkins in Arizona. So, you know, a couple thoughts. I think that Arizona giving him the money that they did two years for $31 million, 23 of it guaranteed, you know, that's probably the most J.J. was going to get on the, on the open market. Um, I think that, you know, they gave him the most money, probably. You know, I don't think that a team would offer him more money. I'm glad that the Patriots didn't go out to that um, to, to that extreme. I know I wrote an article that he'd be a great fit with the Patriots, and I stand by that. He still would have been, but not at that price. Uh, so I'm glad the Patriots didn't pay up for that. Um, and it's not to say that J.J.'s bad, but, you know, he's not the defensive player of the year anymore, you know. He, he's not the same player. You know, he still is a very solid pass rusher, you know, will be a solid add to the Cardinals. I think it will be a great add to, you know, the other end of Chandler Jones. You know, Jones will be on one end, he'll be on the other end. So, you know, I think that that's going to be a good combination for the Cardinals defensively. But I think just at the end of the day, too much for the Patriots, um, I'm guessing that the Patriots probably asked him if he was interested. I don't know if there was any ver- any um, you know interest back from the Watt camp, but you know I think that it's it's I think that it's a good choice for for JJ Watt going to join a, a teammate. You know I think that that will give him you know some more motivation. You know playing for a good young team that you know is really on the come up with the Arizona Cardinals. Um, you know, I think things kind of got out of hand with them down the stretch with Kyler Murray, you know, having that ankle injury, maybe trying to come back a little too quickly, you know, but they were bad in that week 16 game against the 49ers that they really needed to to have to make the playoffs. And they just were bad in that game. And it just was like, yikes. Not playing like the team that, you know, shocked the Buffalo Bills and that Hale Murray uh, earlier in the season, but, you know, they're still a good young team. You know, I think that there's still a team on the come up and I think that it's a good spot for, for, for JJ Watt to go to. So, you know, we'll see how he does in Arizona, see how things work out for him. Um, and Deandre Hopkins. Um, so some other NFL news, the Patriots, uh, former Patriot, uh, Kyle Van Noy was, uh, released, but I don't know if it's official because they think that the Dolphins may be trying to trade him, but I was a shock. I did not expect the Dolphins were going to release him. He had a really good season this year. You know, had had six sacks, was third on the league, third on the team in tackles, uh, had a couple forced fumbles. Like, I'm not really sure why the Dolphins are releasing him. You know, maybe they felt that he's making too much money, but Again, it just seemed weird that they just signed him in the offseason and they're letting him go. So, you know, naturally some people are like, okay, are the Patriots going to jump on that? Yeah, they should. You know, linebacker is a position that they were really depleted at last year. And now getting, you know, Chung and Hightower, or getting Hightower back, you know, boosts that group a little bit. And holy cow, if you brought Kyle Van Noy back into the mix, you know, you could make a weakness into a strength by not really, you know, extending, expanding too much energy, you know, getting someone back in an opt-out and then, you know, signing a former Patriot who probably would come fairly cheap. 
you know, to a team that has a lot of cap space. So I think that it would be a very smart move for the Patriots to go and do that. I think that Bill Belichick is probably already like three steps ahead of us in maybe getting in contact. And it sounds like that there is interest, you know, from Van Noy's camp. And there should be, you know, like why, why would you not want to go back to the Patriots? Why would you not want to go back to the team that, you know, helped turn you into, you know, what you are, you know, he was a very good player last year. And I think a lot of it is due to how well he played with the Patriots, you know, that they gave him, you know, a space to be as good as he possibly could. You know, one of the classic stories of like guys that like play with other teams don't amount to much. They're on the practice squad and then they come to New England and it's like, holy cow, they're, you know, amazing players. Bill Belichick's so good at, you know, bringing guys in at, you know, low, like, low, like low risk, high reward type of guys where it's like he brings in guys, you know, with that maybe on the outside don't look like they're, you know, big time players, but then they provide a lot of value. So I think that it would make a lot of sense for the Patriots to bring Van Noy back. I also think uh, Kyle Rudolph just got released by the Vikings, and I think he would be another player that would make a lot of sense for the Patriots. You know, I think that everyone wants to talk about Patriots and that they need to upgrade the tight end position and need to go out and spend money, get Hunter Henry, get Johnny Smith, get someone like that. So I think that that's one way that they could go about that. But you guys, if we know anything about Bill Belichick, he's going to go out and get a uh, value. He's going to go out and get value. And I think that's exactly what they could be doing because I think that there's interest from Kyle Rudolph's camp, and I think the Patriots could be interested in him too. So he's not a guy that, you know, is going to be a breakout tight end like Hunter Henry, who, you know, is probably the best tight end in the in this free agent class. Um, but Rudolph's been around. You know, he's 31. You know, didn't really set the world on fire. Didn't do much last year. 28 receptions, one touchdown. But the Patriots are in a position where, they're going to try to groom Devin Asiasi into being kind of that next big tight end. And I think bringing in someone like Rudolph, who is a veteran, has been around the block, he knows his role, you know, could be a really huge addition for, you know, whoever that quarterback is. I think especially if it's Jared Stidham or if it's a young guy, you know, he would be a perfect target. No, he's not going to set the world on fire, but, you know, the Patriots could be looking at value at this at this position. You know, getting a two-time pro bowler, getting a guy who's 31, you know, who can still be a solid red zone target. You know, he only had one touchdown this past year, but, you know, he had did six touchdown catches uh, last year, you know, had 64 receptions two years ago. So, you know, it's not un, it's not unthinkable that they could bring in Kyle Rudolph and he could be a solid performer for them. And the Patriots also have had interest in him in the past. I think two years ago they were thinking about trading for him, so you know, this would make sense because he probably will come cheaper after being released. So I think that this another player that would make a lot of sense. So I saw something yesterday about, you know, NFL and, you know, guys being released and guys being cut. And I think someone was quoted as saying, like, it's going to be a massacre, meaning that, like, you're going to see a lot of, like, well-known players get cut and, you know, could be available. And let me tell you, the Patriots are going to be the beneficiaries of that. You know, if guys are going to get released, big-time guys that are getting released, that they will swoop in and they will, you know, take some of those guys. 
Um, but I also think, from the Patriots' perspective, this also could mean that they could be cutting some guys that we don't expect them to. Um, as much as you know, Marcus Cannon's return from opt-out you know, is huge, I wouldn't be surprised if they cut him because I think that they could save about $7 million. And I know that, yes, they have a lot of cap space, but I think that you know, cutting some guys would actually make some sense. You know, Marcus Cannon, I think Julian Edelman absolutely could be a candidate to be cut. Um, and that might frustrate some people, but I think I've already made my, made my thoughts known about him that at a certain point, you kind of got to move on from that, you know, wide receiver position of, you know, guys who are holdovers from Brady and you kind of got to start fresh. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, so I think, again, you know, I mentioned last week that, you know, Cam would like to return. There was a piece in the Boston Globe that Nikhil Harry, you know, would be happy to have him back. Um, you know, so I think that it's going to be a very interesting offseason. Um, you know, I don't know if Garoppolo is going to go anywhere. I don't know if the Patriots, you know, could blow away the 49ers with a good trade offer. You know, I really don't know. Um could they be looking at a guy like Ryan Fitzpatrick? Could they be looking at bringing Cam Newton back? You know, the Patriots are doing their due diligence on the draft. I will tell you that. So I think the Patriots probably have like all the info that they need on the first round quarterbacks, you know, even Trevor Lawrence, who they're not going to get, but, you know, also makes sense that they would be scouting him because, you know, he'll be in the AFC. The Patriots, I think, are going to if I'm not mistaken, the Patriots play the Jags next year. So it would make sense that they would want to get some scouting done on on him and then whoever the Jets take at number two, assuming that that's what they do. Whether it's Zach Wilson, whether it's uh, Trey Lance or, you know, whoever it is, it would make sense that you would want to, you know, do some exhaustive research on some of these guys. And that's what's been happening. The Patriots have been scouting a lot of these guys really heavily, which, you know, makes sense either from the Patriots' perspective as, okay, we're going to take one of these guys or we're going to play against some of these guys. So it would make sense to do some research. So that was very interesting to me. It was a report from uh, Jeff Howe, and he wrote an article on The, on the Athletic um, about it as well. So I think that it's very interesting. You know, I really think that there is going to be a quarterback that's going to fall. You know, whether it's Trey, Trey Lance, maybe it's Justin Fields. I feel like one of those guys is going to fall kind of like Aaron Rodgers did in 05. I know I said that a couple weeks ago, but I really could see that happening. And the Patriots, I think, could be the beneficiary of, you know, getting a young quarterback who might fall based on whatever other teams are thinking, you know. And sometimes the draft doesn't make sense. Sometimes guys fall and they really shouldn't. You know, sometimes guys get picked way too early than they should. So, you know, that's something to keep your eye on. But I think that you know, Trey Lance is someone the Patriots probably have their eyes on. And I could see him falling because he only played one game last season, you know, and teams might be scared off by that. So, you know, I think that it's going to be interesting to see what kind of the chatter happens. Um, and, you know, we're getting closer to free agency. You know, we're, we're, we're less than two weeks away. So, you know, things will get very, very interesting very quickly, um, especially with, you know, all these guys getting cut, you know, that the Patriots could take advantage of that. Because, I don't, you know, I think as much as the Patriots have all this cap space, you know, I don't think you want to go out spending money just willy-nilly. 
Like you want to actually, you know, do your due diligence and whether that means, you know, reinforcing a position of strength, you know, or going out and getting, you know, a receiver to help your offense. But I think like if the Patriots can find some guys that are getting cut and released, you know, they might not need to go out and spend a ridiculous amount of money for certain guys that, you know, they bring in Kyle Rudolph for, you know, a very cheap, a cheap amount of money. And that means that they don't have to go out and give, you know, Hunter Henry a three or four year deal that they could get some value from a guy like Rudolph. Because I think like you want to groom Asiasi into being that number one tight end, you know, and, and then bringing in a guy like Rudolph can give you some production still now at 31. Yeah, I know the production wasn't great last year, but, you know, he probably would get, would get a lot more production in the Patriots offense than he would with the Vikings last year, and he only played 12 games. Had six touchdowns two years ago at 64 receptions. Or had six touchdowns two years ago at 64 receptions three years ago. Um, so a lot of thoughts, a lot of interesting stuff with NFL and free agency and the draft coming up. Um, so before we leave, give you guys uh, a kind of look at bracketology from ESPN as we are approaching uh, conference tournaments. I think conference tournaments are already underway for the women. Uh, men's tournaments, I think, are underway this week. I think the Atlantic 10 is underway today. Um, so we'll kind of take a look at what bracketology is looking like. So Joe Lenardi on ESPN you know, updates these bracket ratings every day and you know right up until the selection sunday which is march 14th um i'll take a look at some of his thoughts you can go find this um on espn so i'll just kind of skim through this um so gonzaga really is kind of that top seed you know i think them and baylor really are the two best teams right now but i also think you know michigan is 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 climbing up the ladder you also have um a number of teams in the Big Ten that are really playing well. Uh, it also reminds me that there is another mailbag question, but we will get to that. I just wanted to get through uh, some of these things right now. So, you know, Duke is one of those teams that's right in on the bubble. They are uh, one of the first four teams out, you know, as of the latest ranking. So obviously these are not like official rankings. So, you know, obviously teams on the bubble can be selected or not selected. So, um, here are some teams that are on the bubble, uh, the last four buys. I'm assuming that this means like the second to last four in uh, Louisville, Rutgers, Georgia Tech, and VCU. And then the last four in Drake University, uh, Michigan State, Xavier, Boise State. Uh, for his first four out, um, Joe Lenardi has Seton Hall, Duke, Utah State, and St. Louis. And then the next four, Syracuse, SMU, Memphis, and Old Miss. So it still looks like we're going to have this full 68 team bracket. Um, you know that you'll have some games like the Tuesday and Wednesday after. Um, it's like the 16th and the 17th after Selection Sunday. Um, so you'll have some games in the first four. Um, and then looking at each of the regions. So this is as of this morning at 9 a.m. Uh, Joe Lenardi has Gonzaga, Baylor, Illinois, and Michigan as the uh top four seeds or as the number one seeds in each of the regions. I think Gonzaga is the number one. Um, so I think you're going to have a really crazy tournament this year. I think not only just because it's college basketball and anything can happen, but I just think because of the pandemic and because some teams have, you know, not played all the games that they're scheduled to and just, 
things have been kind of crazy. And I think that that also brings another question is, you know, is this season really a legit season? You know, and I think that that will be even more of a conversation if there are teams that have to bow out of the tournament, you know, for COVID reasons. You know, I think that you've had a lot of teams that have had to, you know, postpone play or postpone games. And you really kind of don't know how good teams really are. You know, I think that you know how good the re- the top teams are, but it's like filling out the rest of that, like you really don't know. And so I think that's why it could create a really kind of crazy chaos feeling of this tournament where you really don't know what certain teams are and you don't know if they can go, you know, play a, a really good game and knock off a top seed, you know, or does a top seed just to- totally you know, bomb in their first game. So, you know, I think that it, it unfortunately is going to bring in a lot of questions if there are teams that have to leave the tournament and do games get forfeited and things like that. Because it's like the minute that that happens, you know, then the tournament does not really become legit. And it just also then leads me into thinking, well, that's like, why the hell are you playing this season in the first place? You know, things are going to be like this. And it's also just like, brings in that college football where it's like, you know, you had a lot of teams that didn't play their full schedule or, you know, had to play games out of schedule and things like that. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see the two tournaments for the men and the women. The women are in San Antonio. Men will be in Indiana. I think the final four is in Indianapolis. So, you know, there'll be sites all over Indiana. So, you know, hopefully there are protocols in place that teams can be safe and we don't have to see any teams have to leave the tournament, but I think it, I think it might be wishful thinking um, at, at this point. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see uh, what ends up happening with um, the brackets and Selection Sunday and how all that shakes out. But Selection Sunday is uh, a week from Sunday, March 14th. Um, and then the tournament, I'm assuming, will start uh, the 17th or the 18th, that Wednesday or Thursday. I think typically the first four is Tuesday and Wednesday, and then the actual, you know, all the games start on Thursday. So Thursday the 18th, probably we will uh, kick that off. So, you know, next week we'll probably have more updates on conference tournaments and, you know, any sort of tournament news that comes up. Um, So before we go, I actually almost forgot about our last mailbag question from my good friend Matt Plew. Uh, Matt and I went to Springfield together. We uh, lived next to each other uh, two years in a row, our first two years. Um, so Matt is a big time college basketball fan. It's, uh, one of the things that he is really passionate about. So he had a question and it's kind of a little bit more of a comment, but Matt was noticing that a lot of these one and done schools, um, are struggling more than they usually are. And a lot of these one and done schools. So Kentucky Duke, um, just some of the teams that, you know, consistently get guys that come in play one year and then go to the NBA and some of these schools are struggling. And I think, you know, Matt, if I'm going to infer kind of what you're wondering um, about whether, you know, the one and done schools, whether that has an effect on the team's play, you know, does that have an effect on Kentucky's play with the one and done guys? So, you know, I haven't looked close enough at their roster, so I don't know which guys, you know, maybe are going to go pro, but I think that, it's an interesting thought because they think you've seen the teams this year that, you know, usually are the teams that are near the top of the standings or the teams that get, you know, players who are really good that come in, play one season, and then they're done. You know, you saw that with Duke 
two years ago with Zion, Cam Reddish, and uh, R.J. Barrett. You know, they came in, played one year, and then went to the NBA. So, you know, I think that for Jalen Johnson, you know, in particular, the Duke player who uh, decided to opt out um, of the rest of the season, I think a couple of weeks ago, um, and I'm assuming that it's to get ready for the NBA. I think that that's what um, I understood. And, you know, I think that the pandemic has a lot to do with it because I think that there are some guys that don't want to continue to play in college basketball games that might not be safe. And they really don't want to, you know, they really don't want to risk their health, you know, playing in games that, you know, ultimately don't really matter that much to them. And I know that that's a hard thing for some people to hear because I think when we think of college basketball, we think of guys that should stay all four years and, you know, be that important to the team and, you know, stay for four years, you know, get your education, this and that. But, you know, I think that it now becomes kind of a bigger issue that I think that there are some guys, you know, that go to college and play the one year because they want to get to the NBA as quick as they can to, you know, make money for themselves and make money for their families. Because a lot of these guys, you know, are players of color who, you know, come from really underprivileged communities and want to do everything they can to make a better life for them and their family. And, you know, I think that some people think that these one and done guys, you know, don't really care about school and just want to go to the NBA. But it's like, you also have to think about why do these players want to do this? It's not just about getting to the NBA and, you know, getting all the fame and glory. Like, I think there are a lot of guys who are motivated because they want to do what's best for them and their family. So, you know, Matt, I think to get back to your question on why some of these schools that are typically the one and done schools, why are they struggling? I think that that could have something to do with it, that guys are maybe more focused on the NBA. But I also just think it might just be a coincidence that the schools just aren't playing well, that Kentucky just as having a bad season, that Duke just is not having a good season. Duke has also, you know, had to cancel a lot of games. They've had to postpone a lot of games. Um, I've been noticing they are a school that didn't really want to play out of conference, which, you know, makes sense. You know, I don't know why you'd want to put your guys at risk. So, you know, but I think Kansas is a is a is an interesting school that uh, he also mentioned because you know, they've not been a team that's been blowing the doors off of people, but they're still a solid team. You know, they're in the top 25, and they might be a tough out for a lot of teams in the tournament. Um, so I wouldn't say that they're struggling. You know, they've not obviously played at the level that we, like we usually see them play at. But um, Matt, is a really interesting question. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that says something that I've honestly been thinking about. You know, why are some of these schools doing so poorly? Because I don't know if we've ever seen a year you know, in the last, like, 20 years. I'm not even sure how far you'd go out, but, like, a year in which Kentucky and Duke might not make the tournament, you know, which is crazy. Because Duke makes the tournament every year, you know. What kind of crazy year is this that both of them would, you know, miss the tournament? Well, you know, this year is really a year unlike any other. So, um, Matt, I appreciate the question. I really appreciate uh, each of you guys uh, throwing out uh, questions for this week's podcast. So, Um, That probably does it for me uh, for episode 78. You can find find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can also listen on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Everyone have a great rest of your weekend, and uh, we will talk to you next week.